Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Chris Diglio. Welcome to today's episode of IBBA Insights. I'm your host, Chris Diglio. And if you're like me, you're out there in, in the world and in, in, in business brokerage and or you're in business and you run into individuals and you're negotiating and you feel like you're negotiating every minute of every day of your life. Well, if sometimes you feel like you're coming on the short end of the stick of the negotiations, today's episode is really going to be helpful to you and to me and to everyone that's listening. We're fortunate enough today to have on our show one of the world's premier experts in negotiation. Chris Voss is an American businessman, author, and academic. He's a former FBI hostage negotiator, and not just any negotiator, but the FBI's lead international kidnapping terrorist negotiator. He's also the founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group and co-author of the best-selling book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. He's taught business negotiating at many of the top universities, including Harvard University. Chris teaches a master class on the art of negotiating. Chris has been featured in Time, Business Insider, uh, Entrepreneur, Inc., Fortune, The Washington Post, CNN, ABC News, and many, many more. So I want to take this opportunity to thank uh, Chris Voss for joining our show and welcoming him to IBBA Podcast. Chris, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing really good, Chris. Th- thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to the conversation about how to be a black swan. The conversation also, because I've done a lot of research uh, reading the book and watching videos and 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 learning a lot about you. So it was very exciting to me. Our audience, uh, predominantly business brokers, people who help people buy and sell businesses for a living. And we also have business owners, uh, business professionals. So there's going to be a lot of good information uh, that's on there. But before we get into, you know, being a black swan or the black swan group and you explaining about that, your 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 background is extremely fascinating. Can you talk to us a little bit about um, your role as a um, with the FBI and as a hostage negotiator? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I spent a vast majority of my career working uh, terrorism and kidnappings and hostage situations. And, you know, there's two kinds of hostage situations. A lot of people don't understand that. And, uh, you know, there's a contained situation, contained known location is what we call it, which is guys in a bank. And you got the bank surrounded, you know where he is and you know you got them uh, contained. And that's one type of negotiation. It's largely um, non-monetary based, if you will. You know, in, in any given business deal, price is only one term. There's a lot of stuff around the deal besides price or the emotions affects the price, especially buying and selling businesses. I mean, people that are doing that, you understand what Danny Kahneman was talking about in prospect theory. And one of his great examples was if you owned a coffee cup and you just asked somebody what a fair price for the coffee cup was, if you owned it, you'd probably say, this coffee cup, you know, I'm going to be fair. I'm going to be honest. It's probably worth $5. Now, if you were buying that same coffee cup, exact same coffee cup from somebody, and somebody would say, look, just what's a fair price for that? Well, if you're buying it, the exact same asset you're going to say, ah, it's probably worth $2.50. <laughs> so whether you own it or you're buying it, you're not even playing games. You just tend to value things differently. 
you know, and so that's the emotional aspect. And really navigating that is what we did as hostage negotiators on contained situations. Now, the other kind of hostage negotiation is a kidnapping, which is bargaining over commodity. And the commodity happens to be a human life, which I remember the first time I tried to come to grips with that. I just like, holy, what have I gotten myself into? I'm bargaining for humans. But a negotiation is not about what it is to you. It's what it is to them. And for us, this horrible event of a kidnapping, to them, the kidnappers, it's what they do for a living. It's not a day of work. So wrapping your mind around that, and you put those two things together, and you've probably got an everyday business negotiation. <laughs> Oh, you, that's for sure. You you know, listening to you say that, I feel a little bad because you you were negotiating with people's lives on the line. And I've often made the, the comment to people buying or selling a business or when I do trainings to tell people, you know, we have these people's lives in our hands because, you know, they're going to invest their 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 life savings. And if it goes wrong that, you know, they, they can have bankruptcy, failed marriages, and then a lot of bad things can happen. And it's the sale of their business. So we have their their future in our hands. So now I don't really feel so great about making that statement when you were negotiating their actual physical lives. No, man, but, you know, you're making an accurate statement. You know, the and the subtitle of the book, Never Split the Difference, the subtitle is Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. And with the human nature reaction of your biggest problem is your biggest problem, and people are negotiating as if their life depended on it, whether it actually does, but how do they feel about it? When they feel that way about it, then those are the same dynamics that I was dealing with. Sure. Well, when you when you came up with the when you got out of the FBI and I guess you retired and went on to your next uh, career path, you you're the founder and, and owner of the of the Black Swan Group. What is the Black Swan Group, and what does it mean to be a Black Swan? How did you come up with that name? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, a black swan is something that in really small ways has massive impacts. Uh, the impact of the highly improbable, improbable, or the impact of the little things that are game-changing events. And so when I get out of, you know, FBI negotiations, we were always looking for what were the little things that we could do that would be game-changers in our negotiations. And that's why I wanted to name the company that. You know, it's uh, inspired by uh, Nicholas uh, Nassim Taleb's book, The Black Swan, which was the impact of the highly improbable. And he was inspired by, you know, everybody thought there was no such thing as black swans. 16th century Europe, there were only white swans. A black swan could never happen. And then they found black swans in Australia. So it's this whole idea of how do you do the little things that changes the game entirely. And that's what the the Black Swan Group, my company, you asked me what it's about. Well, what's it about is that we teach and train and coach people to be better negotiators using these subtle little things taken from hostage negotiations. But then the Black Swan method has just advanced it into the business world, and we've refined it. Even since the book came out, we've refined it in a lot of ways. And you know, that's what our whole approach is about, you know, to be a black swan, to negotiate with the black swan method is is to take this emotional intelligence of hostage negotiation 
and advance it into the business world and, and do the little things that make all the difference. In, in doing my research and, and reading your book and then watching videos, I, I, I wrote down so many notes regarding a lot of quotes you've said and the things. And one of the things you said I found very interesting was we're talking about the art of negotiating. You said everything in life is negotiations, even getting a coffee at Starbucks. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I love calling that one out because a couple of years ago, I met this gentleman that started this phenomenon that he called secrets, which was tell me your secrets anonymously. I'll share them with the world because somebody is struggling with the same thing you are, and it's going to help them to know that they're not alone. So tell me your secrets anonymously, and I will share them. And we're talking about this, you know, hidden information idea. And he says to me, yeah, I got a, uh, I got a note once, and it was included with it was a Starbucks coffee cup that was still in a wrapper to prove that the guy worked at Starbucks. And he said, I give decaf to people who are mean to me. <laughs> so that's a negotiation, right? You don't think it's a negotiation, but negotiation is about implementation and the way that you conduct yourself in a transaction is going to affect the implementation, whether you know it or not. You know, people come into a Starbucks in a very transactional mindset. You got a price, I got the money. They don't realize that, you know, if the guy didn't like the way they conducted themselves, then uh, maybe they didn't, they, maybe they get decaf. And, you know, I'm thinking at that point in time, like, I, you know, I think I'm just de uh, developing a tolerance for, for caffeine and maybe I'm being <laughs> a little too demanding when I'm in Starbucks. Oh, that's funny. But, you know, in, in doing the preparation for this conversation, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a wealth manager. His name's Ray Descalso. Um, and he, and I said, yeah, I'm getting ready for uh, probably one, a fascinating interview. And I was telling myself, Chris Voss, and he jumped up. He goes, I read his book. I've taken his classes. He goes, and his exact words were best sales and negotiating book I've ever read. And, and he went on to say he attributes a sizable portion of his income to what he's learned from your course uh, courses. So he said, you got to do me a favor. And before you get started when going into all the negotiations and everything, he goes, there's a lot of stuff that he talks about that goes to behaviors and in your life. And can you ask him this question for me? How do you reset your behaviors to apply, to apply it to your everyday life? Yeah, you know, it's just practice. Um, small stakes practice for high stakes results. Like what we describe as, look, this is just me. This is, this is how I do things. This is the way I was wired. That's not true. Everything is learned. Uh, Daniel Core wrote an interesting book called The Talent Code. And he's like, he says, everything is learned. I mean, we're a blank slate when we're born. So what you think is your natural way that you are, you know, that was learned. You learned it, which means you can learn it again if you, deliberately take the time. Now, it's a little bit harder as an adult because there's such a thing as called neuroplasticity, which is our ability to learn, which we haven't lost, but it's largely gone dormant. When we were learning through our teens and our early 20s, like everything was new and everything was awkward, so we didn't notice it. Now that we're adults, so fewer things are awkward that when something feels awkward now, we want to quit. 
but you can relearn if you let yourself feel awkward. It's like trying to learn to brush your teeth with your opposite hand, which is actually a good small stakes practice to awaken your neuroplasticity. But if you want to relearn your tone of voice, let's say, you want to have a better tone of voice. Well, you're not going to do it when you got a lot at stake. you got to practice. You Practice with the person in the Starbucks. Practice with your Lyft driver. Practice with your family. You know, you want to, you want to get good at displaying empathy. Here's a great phrase. Because most people are good at disagreeing, which means they think they can only demonstrate empathy with people they agree with. But here's a great phrase to begin to reset your empathy. Before I disagree... Let me make sure I've got what you're saying right. And then do your best to summarize back to them what they were saying. And you can't disagree until they look at you and they say, that's right. That's an exercise to start over and actually use empathy and still maintain your right to disagree. Well, I love that phrase, that's right, because in in your courses and in the book, you talk a lot about the word no. And you talk about getting, if someone tells you no, getting someone to say that's right if you get a no response out of them and the importance of that. So what is the importance of, if someone's disagreeing with you, you, you get the word no, getting them to agree to something, or getting the words that's right out of them. Yeah, and and it makes no sense. But that's right is what people say when they feel completely understood, or at least partially understood. And every time somebody gets that feeling, then what that happens to them is they get a hit of what's the neurochemical oxytocin, which is the bonding drug. And they feel bonded to you. And they're in the moment with you. And when they feel bonded to you, they're going to be more agreeable. They're going to be more open to what you have to say. And the more either little that's right or really big that's right you get out of them, the more they're going to bond with you and support you and be open to your thoughts. Uh, it's just, it, it doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't matter that it doesn't make any sense because it works. And I'm a practitioner, and I care about what works. You know, the the word no, you say, is not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning of the conversation. So what happens after the other side says no? Most people, when they hear no, get deflated you know, and, and are ready to give right. up. But you're saying no is just the beginning of the conversation. Yeah, and, and let's go back to this whole idea of, it's not about you. You know, how many times we heard that? It's not about you. But empathy in a negotiation, in any of these words, it's not about what your reaction is to it. It's about what happens with them when those words cross their lips. Now, we hate being told no because we feel like it's rejection. But when a word no crosses your lips, you feel safe and secure. You feel like you just protected yourself. Like, my son, Brandon, who runs my company now and, is, and has done as much to advance our thinking as anyone, 
when he was 17 and he used to go, Dad, can I? I would say no, even before he finished the sentence. <laughs> but having said no, I found myself almost always feeling protected, following up by saying like, all right, now, what was it that you wanted again? I'm willing to hear you out now. So the act of saying no, that's just not a parent to a child. That's a human being. When we say no, we feel that we've protected ourselves and we feel safe. And we're actually at that point in time more open to listening to the other side. And that's one of the reasons why no is the start of the conversation, not the end. Because when they say no, they're going to be more open to hearing, which is the start of the conversation. That's one of the whole points of the work. You talk about the value of a no, flipping a no to a yes. A, a collaborated no is worth at least five yeses. Can you explain that, Terry? Yeah. yeah, well, um, I won't say to you, do you agree? I'll say, do you disagree? And you'll say, no, I don't disagree, but here are the following problems. And you'll lay out the steps for me. That's collaboration. If I say, do you agree? If you want to say, yeah, I agree, but here are the following problems. I mean, you, the first yes is to you is going to feel like you've just gotten trapped, roped into, tied down. Somehow that your avenues have just been constrained with that simple yes. So I'm going to trigger a no because what I really want is what comes after the word but. But here are the following problems. Now, but is an erasing word. If you say yes, but here are the following problems, you just erase my yes. I don't want that to happen. But if you say no, but here are the following problems, you just erase the no. And now I got all kinds of great stuff to work with, and you don't feel like you're being trapped. So, yeah, I, we trigger no all the time. And I, I don't say, does this look like something that would work for you? I say, is this a ridiculous idea? No, it's not ridiculous, but here are the following things that we got to get done. Again, if you listen to that dynamic play out word for word, it always plays out in your favor. That's fascinating. And, and, and again, in doing in listening to you and reading, I, you know, 23 or so years in this business, I consider myself pretty decent at negotiating. Right. And I'm like, wow, look at all this stuff that I learned. And this one of the things in particular, I'm not afraid to admit this. One of the things you said when I was um, uh, doing my research you were talking about when you're um, talking to someone on the phone, you said, never ask, do you have a few minutes to talk? And, and I'm like, I right. say that all the time, but you say there's a much better approach than doing that. Yeah. You know, and so, and let, let's break this down a little bit too, because a lot of you are saying, do you have a few minutes to talk? You're very well-intentioned. You're trying to be polite. Those are good strategies. Um, you're trying to show deference. You're not, you're not, you want to make sure somebody's okay with talking. Those are good strategies. Here's the problem with that strategy, though. You know, my mother um, used to say, you know, the voice in your head is probably your mom's voice. And intention, my mom used to say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so your intention is insufficient. Your intention is a good start, but in and of itself, it's insufficient. Because the people that have trapped them, the people that have conned them, they did it with yes. Like there's 
massive criticism out there, you know, for the timeshare industry, you know, you know, buy, buy a timeshare, a luxury five-star resort. I mean, there's, uh, we've run across a couple companies that their whole mission in life is undoing timeshare commitments because people didn't know what they were getting themselves into. Well, I can promise you that if that was the case to someone who didn't know what they got themselves into, they got themselves into it by this yes momentum nonsense. That somebody got them yes in this, would you like to stay in a five-star hotel? Yes. Would you like to live in luxury? Yes. Would you like to travel the world for free and all that nonsense? The next thing you know, they're, they're signing a contract. They got no idea what they got, they've gotten into. Now they don't consciously remember that it was a series of yeses that got them there, but instinctively they do. And so when you call, and respectfully say, if you got a few minutes to talk, it triggers that gut reaction from that person at Condor. And it's an emotional, instinctive thing, and they don't know that that's what happened, but that is what happened. So in order to inadvertently, in order to avoid inadvertently starting off your conversations on the wrong foot, because you engaged in a behavior that the con artist did, then we teach people to do something as simple as say, is now a bad time to talk? Whole different dynamic. I I see that now. I mean, I will never do that again. I mean, I, I saw the value in it. I'm like, wow, I can't believe something so simple, you know, is something that I was doing that maybe I, that I should not have been doing. So, you know, totally since the, since I, since I read that or I saw that stop doing it altogether and I understand why. So I, I appreciate you bringing that, pointing that out because so many of us do little things that I don't think we even realized. And when we talk about negotiating, right. there are a lot of preconceived notions or understandings of, as far as what's acceptable. And I loved one thing that you said. I loved a lot of things you said. This one thing in particular says, never be so sure of what you want that you won't take something better. Can right. you elaborate on that? Yeah. You know, and the crazy thing about that is there's two parts to that. There's always something better. There's always something better. And, you know, I could lay it out intellectually, but the other side is always holding information. Like, when were you ever in a negotiation when you weren't holding something back? You, you were. I mean, there's always something you're holding back. So that means so are they. Which means with if they're holding stuff back and you're holding stuff back, if you guys would just show your cards, you'd come up with a better deal. But getting the other side to hold their cards, show their cards is really hard, unless you're using tactical empathy, unless you're a black swan, unless you're using a black swan method. Because we get people to tell us stuff. They don't tell anybody else through this approach. So there's always a better deal. Now let's say you do what most experienced people do is, you know, they get, they get their eyes on a prize. They're really focused. They know what the best outcome could be. Well, if you're focused, that also means you got tunnel vision. The more focused you are, the more you have on blinders, the more tunnel vision you have. Again, increasing the chances that you're going to walk right by a better deal because you're so goal-oriented. And that's the dilemma that almost everybody out there, particularly really experienced people out there face because they think they know everything 
and they would intellectually agree that they don't, but emotionally they, ah, you know, but I've been around too long and I know this business. And those are, those are people that have blinders on. Without a doubt. And we talk about gaining leverage in negotiations and in, in reading, you know, I learned about tactical empathy. I learned about forced empathy, but how, in determining what's important to the other side, how do you make them feel comfortable enough with you where they start revealing more information than you even asked for? Well, and this gets us back to this, this that's right thing, you know, getting a that's right out of somebody. Every time you get a that's right out of somebody, which is summarizing their perspective, not yours. And here's how you know if you're summarizing the right stuff. If they say you're right, you're summarizing the wrong stuff. If you, you're right means you're wrong. You're right is what people say to get somebody to stop talking. It's what every one of us, male or female, if we got a significant other, at the end of the day when we're tired, if they start in on us on something that they were giving us a hard time about before, we look them in the eye and we say, you're right. And they stop. And they are happy and then they sit down and they go, or they go back to whatever they were doing. So when somebody says you're right, in point of fact is you're wrong. So the course of the negotiation, every time you get a that's right, they get a hit of oxytocin. They feel more bonded to you. Not only are they more agreeable, but your original question was, how do we get them comfortable with sharing their hidden information? Every hit of oxytocin they get makes them more and more willing to share that information. So you're kind of getting, you know, a two for here. You get a two for one response out of that's right. You're getting a better bond with them or, the, or they're bonding with you. It's interesting. It's a one, it's their stockholding with you. It's kind of a one way thing. And you increases the chances that they're going to tell you the information that you're really after to begin with. One of the things I, I learned uh, or you talked about was forced empathy or asking questions that make people feel in control. So what, what type of questions yeah. are that? How do you do that? Well, it's usually a how question. It's probably either a how or a what question. You know, how and what are deferential words. You know, from the old list of open-ended questions, which are the reporter's questions, you know, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Those are the interrogatives, the reporter's questions, the real open-ended questions. You know, we've thrown almost all of them out, and we've focused down on how and what. And how is our version, our first way of saying no, which is how am I supposed to do that? And you say it just like that, and it forces the other side to take a look at your situation, forced empathy. You know, we want to exercise empathy because we want it in return. So a way to force that into the dynamic is to say deferentially, how am I supposed to do that? Now that, the effectiveness success rate on how am I supposed to do that, the forced empathy response is so high. I mean, so many people have hit so many home runs that interestingly enough, when the one time in a hundred, when it doesn't force the empathy in, 
people are shocked. They're caught off guard. They don't know what to do because it's, this has been like, this is my go-to move. This works every time. <laughs> and suddenly it didn't work, and then they're stunned. And I, I had somebody in a, a mastermind group that I was speaking to the other day. This woman said, I used, how am I supposed to do that? And it failed. And so, you know, somebody says something like that to you, what's it really telling you? First of all, what it's really telling me is she's been using it and it's been working. Because she would have been so caught off guard and said it failed if it hadn't been working so well for her. So I'm sure. really encouraged that she's using it and she's killing it. And her version of failure was the other guy said, that's your problem. And she said it failed. And I said, no, it didn't fail. It's just you didn't like the information that it uncovered because negotiation is an information gathering process. You just found out that your counterpart refuses to be empathic with you in any way. Now, that's not good news. It's bad news, but it's news which means you just got smarter. And you don't like the information, but you just got smarter. How did you just get smarter? You just found out for sure that you're negotiating with somebody that doesn't see you as a human being. You now have just been warned of what to expect and what to not expect from this person. And if you get caught off guard by anything from this point moving forward, that's your fault because you're not paying attention. Well, sure. The what's and the how's you called collaborated questions and the importance of knowing right. the words that you use. I mean, you say every question is collaborated for effect. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're trying to induce a specific effect with the use of how or what as terms. It doesn't really, you know, the answers are nice, but the answers are the secondary benefit. You know, the effect is what we want. And the effect of a how question is the effect of forcing empathy towards you. That's the great effect. The effect of the how question is also to force them to think about implementation because how am I supposed to do that is an implementation-oriented question. So that's the thoughts that we're inducing, you know, that the seeds we're planting that they're going to have to think about by the question. What questions? What good is a what question? What questions are designed to identify obstacles? It's an obstacle-focused thinking process we're forcing in, we're inducing into the situation. When you say, what's the biggest challenge you face? You want the other side to share their, their, their knowledge of their obstacles with you. What's holding you back? What have you tried? What's failed? These are all calibrated to uncover obstacles. So it's a specific design and the best application of the word. You say that tactical empathy is the tool for negotiating effectiveness. Why is that? Yeah, tactical empathy and, and why are we using the term tactical empathy? All right, so empathy to start off with really is not about sympathy or agreement. If you dig into the origin of the word, it was, it's about identification of emotions coming from the other side, identification of feelings. It's not about you, like what I said earlier, which means agreement and sympathy are not part of that definition. Neither is compassion. Now, 
demonstrating empathy, demonstrating the understanding of where someone is coming from, because that's what empathy is, demonstrating understanding. It's a very compassionate thing to do. It's a precursor to compassion. But empathy is about the transmission of information, and compassion is about the reaction to that information. Two distinct components. Now, why do we drop the word tactical in front of that? Well, since the word was invented, we have neuroscience. And we know a lot about neurochemicals. We know what dopamine is. We know what oxytocin is. We know what serotonin is. And we know the types of things that tend to tactically trigger those neurochemical responses. So if we know tactically what happens with the neurochemicals and the emotional wiring in the brain, let's apply that to our empathy and get smarter and get our deals faster. You, you specifically mentioned the importance of making someone feel that you know where they're coming from. Right. Yeah, I, I could see the value, and that, that triggers that triggers the oxytocin. I mean, it, it it just does. I mean, it's crazy. And I, you know, I look back a long time ago. I'm talking to a, an FBI colleague, and we're in the cafeteria at Quantico. Quantico is a training academy. You know, it's the mecca of law enforcement. It's the housing of the FBI's knowledge on law enforcement. And so we're in the cafeteria at Quantico, and this is before I'm a negotiator. But I am volunteering on the suicide hotline at this time, so I do, I've already gotten my emotional intelligence training underway. So we're, we're sitting here and we're both thinking about do we want to be profilers or do we want to be negotiators? Because both of them sound intriguing, enriching, and sexy all at once. You know, you want all that stuff. You want, you want to, you want to be intellectually challenged. You want to be enriched as a human being. You want to do something sexy, right? Sounds sexy. And, but I happened to be talking to him about my family at the time, and I'm outlining the relationships in my, with my family. And I never said that we were close, but he says to me, wow, it sounds like your family's really close. And that was strongly implied by what I said, but it was insightful. And I remember the feeling that I got in the moment. I mean, I remember just getting this enormously wonderful feeling of appreciation in that moment and it was ner it was oxytocin i didn't know it i just got a big hit of oxytocin in the moment that's what that does for you i just remember how good i felt in the moment and you know i'm talking about a moment that happened over 30 years ago i remember it as clear as day and I've retained a tremendous feeling of regard for that guy and his intellect. And it probably started then. And if I were to talk about it with him now, I guarantee you he wouldn't even remember it. <laughs> that's, how, that's how powerful it is when you trigger oxytocin in the other side. But it was meaningful to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I can remember it as clear as day. And it, to this day, it continues to color how I feel about that guy and my regard for him. And, of course, what, what does that mean? My willingness to collaborate with him on whatever he might bring up.
Well, today we're talking to Chris Voss. Again, he's the founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group and co-author of the best-selling book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. There's so much information. We're breaking this up into two parts. So now is going to conclude part one of our interview. But uh, look out and tune in to the next episode of IBBA Insights for our continued discussion with Chris Voss, and we'll continue to learn how to successfully negotiate and how you could how you could better yourself, your life, your business in doing so. I'm Chris Diglio. I'm the host of IBBA Insights. Look forward to talking to you again on part two of our interview with Chris Voss.